0: Hey, we get to uh, study God's word together. This is uh, definitely a big privilege. And I want us to take some time uh, to look together at Luke chapter 6. Uh, we're back in Luke. So I'm I'm really excited. We've been uh, talking about leadership in the church lately. And uh, there's a lot more to say, actually. And probably we shouldn't even just talk about leadership. We should also talk about membership, the responsibilities of a church. Uh, but we'll get to that uh, sometime I'm sure. Uh, For now, we're back in the Gospel of Luke, and I want us to uh, spend some time looking together at Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 49. Not all today, obviously. This is going to take a little while. We're going to go through this uh, slowly, and we're going to go through it slowly for one thing, uh, because uh, it's basically the greatest sermon in the world. This is a, a sermon that Jesus preached that Luke records And uh, so we want to take advantage of this. Every time that Jesus preaches, actually, we want to take advantage of that because Jesus is the greatest preacher in the history of the world. And this sermon is important because it's one of the few sermons that we have recorded in the Gospels from him. We have teachings, we have uh, parables, but this is one of the few more extended sermons. And it's actually kind of shocking, too. Uh, This is a paradigm shifting kind of sermon. So you know how uh, some people say things uh, that basically everyone else is saying? Those, those kinds of people are boring usually, but, but comfortable. And then other people say things that uh, change the whole conversation. Those people are rare and uh, challenging because they are saying something so different. And Jesus is saying something so different. Jesus is changing the conversation here, and you can see that even just by looking at the introduction. We don't have to get deep into it. We can see that right away, even really just the first thing Jesus says in verse 20. This is how the sermon starts. Listen. He says, blessed are you who are poor, which of course is not how most people talk. Blessed are you who are poor. And we're going to have to work our way through exactly what Jesus means there. It's going to take some some effort. But even if you don't know exactly what he means by that at first, you do know that he is speaking in a way that most people would have found shocking. This is not normal. This is not how people normally work, people normally think. And it keeps going throughout the sermon. That's just the introduction. So it's important, this message because this is Jesus speaking, and what he says is shocking, which is why I want to take some time to kind of get us ready for what he's going to say. And I want to get you ready by giving you sort of an introduction to the sermon, which is basically what I think Luke is doing for us in verses 17 through 19, if you look at it. It's like this short little summary of Jesus' ministry before Luke dives into the sermon itself. He writes, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And you notice that he doesn't tell us a specific story there and uh, he doesn't even share a dialogue between Jesus or someone else like he normally does. Instead, it's kind of like he just stops and gives an overview of who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing before he tells us what Jesus had to say, almost like an introduction, really. In fact, it's almost like when someone goes to preach at a new church somewhere. Uh, You know how people usually stand up before they preach and give an introduction. It's like, this is what you need to know about the speaker before you listen to him preach. And in story form, that's kind of what Luke is doing here with Jesus and what I want to do for you. This is what I want you to have in mind as you listen to Jesus preach. We want as best as we can to hear what Jesus actually has to say and not just what we want him to say. And uh, this sermon is easy to make Jesus say something different than what he's actually saying. And so we, to hear what Jesus is actually saying, are going to have to do a little work and almost go back in time so that we can hear him as these original hearers would. And to help you do that, first of all, I want to make sure you appreciate exactly who is preaching this message. That seems like a good place to start. Who is preaching? And then the the reason that he's preaching, and finally, who he's preaching to. So the, the preacher, the purpose, and the audience. But the first question, of course, maybe seems easy. Who is preaching? Since I literally just said, I want you to listen to Jesus preach. But actually, I think Luke wants you to be thinking something specific about Jesus. He wants you to know really clearly that this is not just another preacher. We're listening to another sermon, but this is not just another preacher. This is someone who is fulfilling all the Old Testament promised. And to show you that, I want you to look at the way Luke describes the setting of this sermon, which I know uh, maybe kind of sounds boring, the setting. But a a sermon setting matters, especially since Luke's telling a story, and he's not just giving us sermon transcripts. We're not just picking up a a book of sermons here, we are reading one particular sermon in the middle of a story. It's it's kind of like if I'm reading the biography of a preacher, uh, like maybe Jonathan Edwards. The author might give an example of one of his sermons, and usually it will be a significant one. Of course, not just any sermon, but a significant sermon. And the author will get us ready for that sermon and say something like, this is part of the message that he preached, right before he was fired by his congregation. He puts the sermon in a particular setting, which obviously impacts the way we read the message then. Knowing the setting impacts the way we hear the message, and sometimes it does more than that. There are are times where the setting or the details I tell you about the setting actually communicates all by itself. And sometimes it communicates so much that I can say a lot about the conversation without even telling you the conversation. Like, for example, I could tell you about how 27 years ago now, uh, I was dating Marta, and I took her to a very special spot. We actually drove by the spot last night, and I was uh, nervous, and I was probably shaking a little bit, because that's what I do when I get nervous, I shake a little bit. And I put my hand in my right hand, uh, my right pants pocket, and I pulled a little box out. And then I got down on one knee. It was raining. I got down in one knee. uh, And I said, what? You know what I said. And all I did was describe the setting. The way we describe a setting can communicate. And if we look down at verses 17 through 19, the way Luke describes the setting for this message communicates something big about Jesus. First of all, he says, and he came down with them. He, being Jesus, came down, which means he had obviously gone up at some point before. And Luke told us in verse 12 that he had gone up to pray. In these days, he writes there, verse 12, which are the days right after all this conflict with religious leaders who were at this point talking about wanting to even kill Jesus. And these days, verse 12, Luke says, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Which would be significant if I were telling you a story about anyone. I mean, if I were telling a story about one of your friends and I said that they spent the whole night praying that would tell you something important, what's going on in their lives at, at that moment. But it tells you something especially important in Luke when he's talking about Jesus. Because whenever we find Jesus praying in the Gospel of Luke, a big move forward in God's salvation plan is happening or about to happen. So if you pause for a second, how history works. God has a salvation plan, a rescue plan. So history is not a circle, it's a line, meaning it's going somewhere. And where it's going is God is going to reverse the curse. And in Luke, whenever Jesus is about to do something that moves that plan forward, we find him praying. It's almost like background music in a movie. You hear certain music, you know the kind of scene that you're about to watch just by listening to the music. That's Jesus praying in the Gospel of Luke. Like, for example, at his baptism, God is identifying Jesus, and Luke says, Jesus is praying at his baptism. Or before he goes to the cross, Luke says he's praying, and he's even praying on the cross. And here, Luke says he was praying all night on a mountain after being rejected by the religious leaders before he calls his disciples and chooses 12 of them to serve as his apostles, as his authorized representatives. That is a move forward in God's salvation plan. How? How does that move this forward? And again, let me give you a little background real quickly so you can get a feel for what's happening here in Luke because actually this is where you need to know a little bit about the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible is really fun. It's amazing. But it does take a little bit of work. So the Old Testament is not just a bunch of random stories. It's a story about how God is saving the world. In Genesis 1 through 11, you get the problem, and you see how God's plan for the world is to live with man. This is the Garden of Eden. But man rebels against God and gets kicked out of God's home and becomes sinful, and he can't get back in. He can't live in the presence of a holy God. He's in a state, you might say, of permanent exile. He's outside the special presence of God, where he was meant to be. And so what does God do? God chooses Abraham. And basically, he promises Abraham that he is going to give him descendants, and he's going to make those descendants into this nation Israel, and he's going to use Israel to fix what's wrong with the world, which makes the nation Israel really important. They are key to how God is going to save the world. And yet the problem is we read the rest of the Old Testament and how does the the Old Testament story end? It ends with Israel, this nation, these people that God's chosen to be the means through which he rescues the world. At the end of the Old Testament, they are pretty much in the same place as everyone else. They're in exile too. And they're not even a full nation anymore. They used to be Twelve tribes, but now at the end of the Old Testament, they're down to two, which is a problem for Israel, but it's a problem for the world as well. Because how is God going to save the world? Through Israel, which is how the Old Testament works. He's going to save the world through Israel, but now Israel is in the same situation as everyone else. And yet we're not too worried as we're reading the Old Testament because we know there's not just a story in the Old Testament. There are also these prophets. And these Old Testament prophets tell us, they provide commentary, you might say, on the story. And in their commentary, they tell us there's this better day coming. It's not always going to be like this. There's a better day coming. And so, if we look at history as a line, the Old Testament tells us there is a day on this line, there's a period on this line where God is going to step into the world and he is going to accomplish like a second exodus by sending someone into the world, an individual who is going to take on Israel's mission for himself. So the first exodus, you remember the first exodus, because that's like the biggest moment in the Old Testament. That's like the resurrection in the Old Testament, where where God acts in a big way, and he saves Israel the, the first time from exile and bondage to a foreign nation. And in the prophets, God says... That if you look at the future history of the world, what is going to happen is there is a day coming when he is going to send someone like Moses, but better, to do something like that again. Which is part of what makes Jesus such a big deal. And why you need to listen to him. Because he's not just another preacher. He came into this world to do something. But what specifically? Think end time salvation. Think what the prophets say about Israel. Think what the prophets say about the second exodus. And you know, there are a number of different ways that Luke tries to make that obvious, even just from the beginning of this gospel. This is something that he works at making clear. So like, for example, when Jesus is getting baptized, he's praying And uh, Luke tells us, God rips open the sky, and he calls him the same name he called Israel. And then after that, you remember maybe there's this genealogy where he's connected back to Adam. And it's like Luke is saying, he is a second Adam. And if you ever come to the Bible Reading Project on Thursday mornings, you know there's all these connections in Exodus between Israel and Adam, and even the building of the tabernacle and the creation of the world. And what's Israel supposed to be doing? What's their purpose? God's rescuing them and planning them in the promised land to be like a second Adam, but of course they failed. And so Luke's like, here's Jesus. These are all these pictures from the Old Testament to help us understand Jesus. And we know these pictures are significant because when Luke tells us about Jesus' ministry, what happens? One of the first things he shows us in Luke 4 is Jesus in the wilderness. And why the wilderness? It's clear God took him there. That's why he's there. But why did God take him to the wilderness? It's because who else was in the wilderness? Israel was in the wilderness. And Adam actually was sent out into the wilderness. And so it's like Jesus is following in their steps. Only he succeeds where Adam and especially Israel failed. And so he's accomplishing the salvation God promised through Israel by, you could almost say, replaying the story of Israel, which is what the Old Testament actually promised. And why when Jesus starts preaching, Luke tells us the first time Jesus preaches in Luke 4, he preaches a passage from Isaiah. And what's he talk about? Luke 4, verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Which is all about what? It's about a rescue. And a rescue for who? For those who are in exile. So That's the poor, that's the captive, that's the blind, that's the oppressed back in the book of Isaiah, the passage Jesus is quoting. And so Jesus is preaching about God accomplishing this second exodus that we've been talking about. It's like he's Israel, Jesus, and he's going to accomplish what the Old Testament promised for Israel. Meaning there's this like absolutely huge end time salvation component to why Jesus has come into the world. That's the claim Luke's making. And reading Luke, you wonder maybe, can he do it, Jesus? Because that's a lot. I mean, when we talk about a second exodus, the second exodus is even better than the first because it involves actually dealing with all the problems of the world and a complete reversal of the curse. That's going to be permanent. Can Jesus do that? Because he kind of looks ordinary. And we look at Jesus' ministry in Luke, and what's he doing? He's proving he can. He's exercising authority, and he's defeating demons, and he's healing the sick. And you know what? He's not just dealing with external problems like that either. He's also cleansing the unclean just by touching them. And he's able to provide forgiveness for sins as well. And think about that, because where did that happen before? If you're reading the Old Testament in the story, cleansing and forgiveness of sins. Where did that happen? It happened in Israel, at the temple. You would have to go there to be cleansed and to be forgiven through sacrifice. And now Jesus is doing it. And if we're still confused after all that about who is Jesus and what's he coming to do and why should we listen to his message, Luke shows us, and this is the setting, finally, for this sermon, verse 17. Before Jesus preaches, Luke shows us Jesus standing there with these 12 apostles. It's like, da-ding, he says, and he came down with them. And who is the them? The 12 apostles. And that is significant. If you're a Jewish person standing there, you know what that meant. I mean, that's like a politician giving a speech, wearing a flag for a shirt. Jesus has been going around preaching about the kingdom and quoting the Old Testament, and now he's standing there with these 12 men, and every Jew knew there were supposed to be 12 tribes in Israel. And they also knew that at that point there weren't, because 10 of those tribes had basically been lost, which meant at the moment Jesus is preaching, Israel can't do all that the Old Testament promised. And they needed God to make them into a real nation again, which of course is what they were longing for. They were longing for this day when God would step in and turn everything around and make them this great nation again. And now what's happening? Luke six, what's happening is that Jesus is coming down from this mountain after going around preaching about the kingdom and quoting Isaiah 61 and standing there with 12 followers whom he has appointed and given this special status and commission And I'm telling you, that was significant for the people standing there that day because they knew what that meant. Luke 6, 17 through 19, you look at the setting for this sermon and you add up everything Luke's told us about Jesus with him standing there at that moment with these 12 apostles. You put those details together and Luke is saying, this isn't just an ordinary preacher. This is Jesus representing Israel, being Israel, and coming to set in motion this great end-time salvation that the Old Testament talked about. That's who's speaking. And I guess I want to just stop for a minute, because I don't know if you think about Jesus like that. As fulfilling what God promised to do through Israel, and as being connected to this great end-time salvation. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know this is a big part of what makes us as Christians so excited about Jesus. You ever wonder, why are Christians talking about Jesus so much? It's not just because he was a really good teacher. He is a good teacher, the best, but it's not just that. We get excited about Jesus because we believe Jesus is the key to how God is going to finally and fully solve all the problems in this world. The history of the world is going somewhere, and we know where it's going. We actually know that it's moving towards a day when God steps into this world, and he establishes his kingdom, and he puts his representative on the throne where he will rule as king of the world, and we're convinced that king is Jesus, and that what happened with Jesus in the Gospels is a key part of how God's even going to be able to do all that. And if you want a little picture, a glimpse of what this salvation that I'm talking about is going to be like, that's kind of why we have the Old Testament. We get little pictures of this salvation in the Old Testament with Israel and all those things that God said he was going to do with Israel. If they just obeyed him, he was going to make a way for people to dwell with him and to live in his house, but of course they didn't obey, and we see the consequences. And yet you might ask, what would it be like if Israel didn't fail? You know, And we get a picture here with Jesus and Luke as Jesus is being Israel, and what's going on? Luke says, let's read it again, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And that's Jew and Gentile, this multitude. He's talking about a great multitude from the places in Israel and from places outside of Israel. And so it's like the whole world is coming to Jesus here and they're being blessed, they're being healed. And Luke says, those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Which is significant, again, because we look back to the Old Testament, and this is what Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to obey God's law, and if they obeyed, what was going to happen? Do you remember? One of the first things God says in Exodus that was going to happen was that he would heal all their diseases. That's Exodus chapter 15. And so Jesus is like a place here in Luke 6 where everybody's coming to be healed, which is kind of what the prophets said was going to happen when God restored Israel because God didn't give up on his plan. You read the prophets and God says he's going to save Israel and bless Israel and the world is going to be blessed through Israel, which I'm saying is what makes Jesus such a big deal. As we listen to Jesus, we're listening to the one who can save Israel, which means we're listening to the one who can save the world. Now, why is he preaching? That's the second question. Who is preaching first? Why is he preaching? And this is maybe where we even start to see more clearly why we really need to be listening. Because even though Luke proves Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises, not everybody is responding the way you might have expected. And so if you take a second and just go back to chapter 1, at least in in your mind, because in chapter 1, Luke makes clear there's, there's no question that Jesus is the one the Old Testament talked about as a virgin is giving birth and angels are showing up and quoting Old Testament prophecies. And yet, you turn to chapter 2 and something really strange happens. That's key to how the whole story works. Because in chapter 2, Jesus is presented at the temple. And do you remember this? Uh, he's, he's a baby and his parents take him to the temple. And there's this old man there who Luke makes clear is somebody we really need to be listening to because God's told this man that he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. And he's been waiting his whole life until he sees Jesus as a baby, and he's so excited, and he's like, I can finally die now because I look at this baby, and I see God's salvation. And yet, you know what he says next? He says, this baby is God's salvation— And then he says something really strange. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 34. And this is where it gets really surprising and important. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And what is surprising there is you don't expect the word fall. The fall of many in Israel. And the word opposed, too. You don't expect that. He's a sign that's going to be opposed. And so here's the tension we're dealing with. From the beginning, Luke is like, Jesus, he's the Savior. Yes. And he's going to reign. And he's going to bring peace to the world. And he's going to establish God's kingdom. And he's going to be everything Israel dreamed and that we need. You can be sure Jesus really is the final piece of the puzzle. He really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises God made to Israel. But not everybody in Israel is going to accept that. And this is important, so important. It's part of what makes this urgent. Jesus divides. God is acting in this world through Jesus, but not everybody gets Jesus. I mean, even before we really get into the story here in Luke, When Jesus is still a baby, before it happens, we see this old man who tells us that the one God is sending to save Israel is going to divide Israel first. And so even though he is going to bring this end-time salvation, not everyone in Israel is going to experience it and enjoy it. There are going to be people who reject him, which I'm saying is so important to understand about Jesus. Again, if we just stop for a second. Because you need to understand that Jesus is not just another teacher that you can either listen to or not listen to. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. He is the centerpiece of God's plan. He has been sent into this world to do something, to bring salvation. And this salvation is a real salvation we're talking about. We're talking about God dwelling with his people. We're talking about the Messiah ruling as king. We're talking about the earth functioning as it should, just like the Old Testament says. And yet not everyone's going to enjoy it. You're either going to be part of the kingdom or you're not going to be part of the kingdom. And it all depends on your response to Jesus. You have to respond to Jesus. There is no neutrality. Jesus is a crossroads. You come to Jesus and a decision has to be made. He divides. And one way you know that is you look back at Luke and you see that's what happened when he came into the world the first time. And I'm saying that's still what's happening now. Jesus is going to bring salvation. There's a day coming when all of his enemies are going to be judged and God's kingdom is only going to be filled with followers of Jesus. But in the meantime, before Jesus brings that great salvation, Jesus brings division. He divides those who are going to experience this end-time salvation from those who are not. And one thing that really stands out as Luke tells this story is that many of the people you might have expected to be part of his kingdom are the ones who reject him. And many of the people who you would not expect to ever be able to be part of his kingdom are the ones he calls to himself. Which I think if you look at the context is actually part of why Jesus is preaching this message here now in Luke chapter 6. So remember, because I'm just trying to give you an introduction. And I'm giving you an introduction because Jesus is going to say some things that are important, but shocking. Shocking. And you need to understand why he says them. And to understand why he says them, you need to get some context. Because the sermon Jesus is preaching is in Luke 6. Which means there are five chapters that go before it. Where Luke's been showing us basically two things. One, that Jesus is salvation, which is good news. And two, that the salvation he provides is going to be experienced and enjoyed by a surprising group of people, which is good news for some and and bad news for others. And you see that even if you go back to the first couple chapters, because Luke's been pounding this point home. If you even think about, just, just think about the first person who doesn't believe. Who is the first person in Luke? who gets an announcement about how God's providing salvation and yet doesn't believe. It's this respected priest with all these credentials. And he's in the temple, the place where God meets with man. And he is the very person you would expect to believe. And yet he doesn't. And he's judged by God. And he's silenced for a time. And then who is the first person who does believe? It's this person you wouldn't expect. It's a teenage peasant girl who's somewhere out in a place called Nazareth, in Galilee of the Gentiles. And yet she believes, and she's called blessed by God. And it's like Luke is establishing this pattern that is only going to get louder as we read this gospel, that God is bringing this great salvation through Jesus, and he's bringing it to the lowest and to the least. And, you know, if you look at Jesus after he's grown up and after he started ministering, that's clearly what happened. Because Luke 4 on, you know, who's rejecting him in these last couple chapters that we've been studying? It's the religious leaders. It's the powerful. It's the influential. It's the people everybody expected and respected. And, you know, one reason why this is what's so ironic is because of who Jesus says he's coming for. He says he's come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is like the good news that you want to shout out as you read Luke, if you know you're a sinner, if you know you're not worthy, that God is acting in this world through Jesus to fix everything and to establish his kingdom and to provide salvation. And he's doing it for people you would never expect to be able to experience it. And Luke wants you to know, one, that this is really deliberate. It's not an accident. And two, that Jesus can do that. He's not just making this stuff up. It's not just good intentions. Jesus came to save sinners, and he can save sinners. If we could fast forward in time to the kingdom of God, the day it's finally established, we're going to see a surprising group of people there. Let me show you how this works in Luke, at least up to this point. If you go back to Luke 4 now, at at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus preaches a sermon that tells the kind of salvation he's bringing. You remember, it's salvation for exiles. That's Isaiah that he's quoting. And then he proves that he can bring it, Luke 4, 14 through 41, by defeating demons and healing the sick. And then Luke says he goes around preaching the kingdom of God. That's his mission, Luke four forty three. And the kingdom of God is this idea that we're talking about. It's God's people living in God's place, experiencing God's presence, and enjoying God's blessing as they live under God's rule. It's what happens when God steps in and reverses the curse. It's this great day the Old Testament promised. And then, chapter five is what? It's showing us who Jesus is wanting to be part of that kingdom, who Jesus is calling to experience that salvation. Because, of course, Luke 4, when Jesus quotes Isaiah, everybody in Israel is thinking that's them. And yet it's not everybody in Israel. Clearly, Luke 5, and this is the high point, Luke 5.32, because Jesus says he's not coming for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And that chapter begins, you remember, with Jesus calling Peter and saying, I'm going to use you to make disciples, to bring people into my kingdom. And the people we're going to be going after to be part of this kingdom are not going to be the righteous. It's going to be sinners. Which brings up some questions like, first of all, how can Jesus do that? That's an important question because you read the Old Testament and God hates sin. You read Leviticus, in the Old Testament, sinners approach God and what happens? They die. And so if God's kingdom is getting us back into the garden, if it's not just this idea, it's real, it's God living with man, how can that kingdom be filled with people who are unclean and people who are sinners? And so Luke shows us that Jesus can bring salvation for sinners because he can cleanse the unclean and he can provide forgiveness for sins. And he's actually able to do better and fully everything God was doing through Israel at the temple in the Old Testament. And so you remember the story about the leper and you remember the story about the paralytic. And then of course, okay, he can do that, but why did the religious leaders not get it? That's the next question. I mean, I can see why Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, but why not the righteous? And so you know what Luke does next as he tells this story? He tells a couple stories at the end of Luke 5, which explain, the reason is because the religious leaders didn't understand the significance of Jesus, the way they responded to him made clear. They didn't understand what God was doing through him. And why didn't they understand? It's not because he was confusing, it's because they were committed to a completely different system of religion. It might have looked the same on the outside, but it was fundamentally different. And the problem is you couldn't mix the two. You remember how he talks about new wine and old wineskins? What he means is there's Jesus and there's what the Bible says God is doing through Jesus and there's every other religious system. And they're not compatible. Sure, they might look the same on the outside, maybe, There's some things they have in common, like praying and doing good and worshiping, but ultimately they're not compatible, and we know that because if the Pharisees and these other religious leaders' system wasn't compatible with Jesus's, then all these other systems that we've got around us today are not going to be either, which is why it's so important we listen to Jesus, because this is not just any message. We're talking about how God is working in this world. And I know there are different ideas. You've got all kinds of information and you've got all kinds of opinions coming at you, but Jesus is different. Luke shows us Jesus is different. He is the one who is going to divide those who are part of God's kingdom from those who are not. And you have to pay very careful attention to what he says because he is saying something that is incompatible with every other religious system that is out there. And his message is authoritative. And to emphasize that, beginning of chapter 6, Luke says he's Lord of the Sabbath. I don't know, but do you remember this story? This is a lot of review, but it was a long time ago now that we looked at it. But look at verse 5 for a minute because it summarizes. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And there's so much there with the phrase Son of Man and, and Sabbath. And this is a long story too. But the Sabbath is a picture of what the world is supposed to be like. So, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and God's original plan, God dwelling with man and the world being at rest in a constant state of enjoyment, that was the seventh day, that was the Sabbath. And then we know, of course, man sinned. And so God chooses Israel and he gives them these laws about the Sabbath that are such a big deal. Why? Because Israel was a witness, it was supposed to be a witness. That was God's way of telling the world that his plan was still on, that Sabbath plan. And so as Israel kept the Sabbath, it's like they were pointing the world back to what God was going to do. And so the Sabbath is a very big deal. And the person in charge of the Sabbath is the person in charge of Israel. And in charge of Israel's purpose in the world. And that person is Jesus. He's the one who defines the purpose of Israel and the world, which is why you listen to him. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But Many people reject him because his message is different, but it's binding because it's absolutely authoritative and because he's the one who understands God's word and God and what God's doing in this world, not these religious teachers. And if we need any more proof of that, we see in the next story, chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, Luke gives it because you remember maybe how Luke says Jesus is in the synagogue and there's a sick person there who Jesus could heal and yet it's the Sabbath And so Jesus asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And that's not a hard question, but they won't answer. And Jesus is like, no, you men are missing it. You do not understand God's law, the purpose. And he heals the man. And they get so angry they want to kill Jesus for it. After which, now we're almost at this sermon, Luke 6, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he prays. And he chooses 12 apostles. What's he doing? Look, I I know this is a lot. I was thinking uh, this sermon could really be helpful or totally confusing. But it's worth a try. Because I'm really trying to help you get a feel for what's going on as Jesus is about to preach. Because this is not just another preacher. This is not just another message. As Jesus comes down this mountain with these 12 apostles, he is making a statement. He has come to do what Israel was supposed to do. He's going to establish the great kingdom God promised for Israel. He's going to accomplish this great end time salvation. He's substantiated all that. He's proven he can do it, but not everyone's going to enjoy it. And even Israel, not even everyone in Israel is going to enjoy it, partly because there are all these false religious guides out there that you can't listen to. If you want to experience salvation, you want to be part of what God's doing in this world, you have to listen to Jesus and the ones he chose and authorized to represent him. Because Jesus is the only one who can interpret and explain God's word and the ones he commissioned. And this message here in Luke 6 is going to be a particularly important part of that explanation. And one more way we know that, at least a hint, is because Luke says, verse 17, he comes down with them, which, believe it or not, is a detail that adds to the whole picture of what's going on. I was telling someone, preaching this message, it's like the old days where you had a television, but you didn't have cable or internet or anything, and so you had these antennas, and you would have to fiddle with the antennas, and sometimes you'd have to get tinfoil and like put it on there to get the picture to come in clearly, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. Luke says Jesus is coming down. But he's coming down from where? From being on a mountain. And he came down with them, verse 17, Luke says, and stood on a level place, which probably was like a plateau on a mountain. You know how sometimes a mountain's going up and then it sort of stops for a minute and there's an area of land where it levels off before it goes up again? That's a plateau. And that's where Jesus is standing, on a flat piece of ground on the mountain. Which is why some people think this is the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you know Matthew 5, that's the more famous sermon. And there are some similarities between that sermon and this one. But Matthew says he was on a mountain, and Luke says he was on a level place. And yet, obviously, if this is a plateau on a mountain, it could be either. But I don't think it's the same sermon, though I'm not sure it matters. But what I do think matters is that he's on a mountain. Because the fact that he's been praying all night tells you, okay, we're about to see something big happen. And that he's on a mountain is also an important part of the picture because mountains are really significant places in the Bible. You know, uh, when you read the Bible, location matters. And mountains are locations that really matter because mountains tend to be places where people meet with God, where God shows up in a unique way. In fact, one author puts it like this. He says, salvation in the Old Testament is often viewed in spatial terms, meaning that salvation is found where Yahweh is present, and more often than not, Yahweh seems to be present to reveal himself to humanity on mountains. The most famous mountain being probably what? Some people think the Garden of Eden was a mountain, actually, but, and there's reasons why they think that from Ezekiel. But the most famous mountain was uh, probably Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses and gave his law to Israel. And if you've read that story, you know how it talks about Moses going up the mountain, and then Moses coming down the mountain. And he's going up, and and he's going down. And as he's going up, he's representing the people to God, and as he's coming down, he's representing God to the people, which is an idea that probably somewhere in the background here, in this passage, because that's sort of how Luke works. Luke doesn't always outright tell you something. Um, Instead, he shows you, and he expects you to kind of pick up on what he's showing you because he assumes you know the Old Testament. It's like I told you, reading Luke, it's like watching a play on a stage with a movie on the screen behind the play going on at the same time. And the movie on the screen is the Old Testament. And sometimes what's happening in the movie and what's happening on the stage are kind of similar. And the scene in the Old Testament here is Moses coming down a mountain. And so you go back and you look at that scene and what's happening at that mountain with Moses and God and Israel is that God is constituting Israel as a nation. He's told them their purpose there to be a kingdom of priests representing him to the world. And he's explaining how, which I think kind of helps us understand what Jesus is going to be doing here in this sermon. We need to listen to Jesus because Jesus is bringing this great end time salvation, but he's also bringing division. And so if we're going to experience that salvation, we need Jesus to guide us like God did through Moses back at Mount Sinai the first time. We need Jesus to explain who's going to be part of the kingdom and how they are to represent him. That's why Jesus is preaching. Now, now real quickly, who is he preaching to? First of all, obviously, he's preaching to the apostles since Jesus came down with them, he's going to be preaching this message For them, which is one reason we trust the apostles. Christianity is built on the foundation of the apostles. And one reason that is a strong foundation is because they were chosen and trained and identified by Jesus, who is salvation, to represent him. But then second, he's preaching to his disciples. Luke says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. And then verse 20, he says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples which includes the apostles, but it's a bigger group because uh, Luke says a great crowd of his disciples, which would be people like most of you and me, people who say they're followers of Jesus. But one reason it's important we listen to Jesus here is because as we keep reading the Gospel of Luke, what we're going to find out is that not all of them really were followers of Jesus. And that's sort of the scary thing about this message, and one reason why this passage is on my heart, because Jesus is a big deal. He's the key to God's plan, and he's demonstrated, and he's proven it, and yet even though it's so obvious, not everybody gets it. Jesus brings division. Even back then, Jesus divided those who were going to experience the kingdom from those who are not, and the thing is, a lot of those who didn't get it were people you would have thought would. Starting with the religious teachers, of course, who spent their life reading the Bible, but also, you know, some of the people following Jesus that day, claiming to be his disciples. And look, I don't want that to be any of you. You have to respond to Jesus. You have to respond. And what does that mean? One thing it means is you have to turn from all these different ideas and opinions that people are telling you about God and what God's doing and submit to Jesus and what he says as absolutely authoritative for your life. And this message is an important start because we see Luke says here, he's coming down from the mountain, like like Moses. We're watching the next step forward in God's salvation plan. He's providing salvation through Jesus, and he's going to provide that salvation a certain way to a certain group of people. And Jesus is going to explain here what that fact that God is providing salvation this way through him means, the implications. And you know, one of the, the uh, most amazing and surprising and awesome implications is that you even get to be part of this coming kingdom, that you even get to hear this message. Because I don't know if you realize it, but that's not something you can just assume reading the Bible, that you could be part of this future salvation. The Bible talks about for a lot of reasons, but one big one in the Bible being the fact that most of you are Gentiles, like me. And actually, you know, the people in Jesus's day, the religious leaders, would never have thought God's salvation could extend to people like us. Which, of course, would have been one of the things that was confusing about the early church, and it's part of why Luke's writing this gospel, and why here at the beginning of this gospel, he's hinting that God's doing something even bigger with Jesus than people could have dreamed. Because who is Jesus speaking to here? One, he's speaking to his apostles, yes. Two, he's speaking to a great crowd of his disciples. But three... Also, Luke says, to a great multitude. From where? Luke says Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which means, as I was saying, he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles. I'm reading the rest of the New Testament. We know this is part of the good news, that the salvation God is providing through Jesus is not limited to restoring the tribes of Israel. He's also come to be a light to the Gentiles. They will come to him through Jesus. He's that important. And even this little introduction to to his message in Luke shows us that. But I guess guess the, the question really is not whether Jesus is that important to God's plan or whether Jesus is that important in the Bible, but whether Jesus is that important to you. What is your attitude toward Jesus? Because there is no one like him. In the history of the universe. He is exalted above all. And he is essential. He alone is the source of salvation. But not for everyone. He he divides. He divides those who are going to enjoy salvation. And those who won't. And you are here. Like those people back in Luke. And God is speaking to you. Through his word. This is a moment. How Are you responding to Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we can't wait for next week till we actually hear your message. This was just a long introduction. (laughs) But we're uh, so grateful that, Lord, you've revealed to us this plan. We are some of the most privileged people on the planet because you have spoken and you have told us the history of the world before it happens. And we know one day, Jesus, you will return and you will defeat your enemies and establish your kingdom. And you've proven that by already defeating death and ascending into heaven. So this battle, this war is going to be won. And I pray, Lord, that in the meantime, we'll believe, we'll trust, we'll submit to your word. And that we'll take this great gospel out so that more and more unlikely, surprising people can enjoy forgiveness with God and be part of this eternal kingdom. And we pray this in your name. Amen.